So it's really through experimentation and understanding that we can improve human health. But the first thing is to identify what the problem is. Yeah, your schedule has been like really, really, really packed over the last few months. I think we booked this meeting two months out, so I'm glad you're able to make it. But I think you were talking about you had some grants you applied for. There was something to do with COVID. Yeah, the sad thing is that um, in, in my in my sort of position, you'd think that your your time will finish. You know, you'll be free next week or the week after. And just as you think it's going to happen, more crap gets into your um, uh, into your inbox. It really never finishes. That's what I've realized. So as a professor, when you're working in a hospital, like, are you like the boss or like do the, the managers in the hospital hand you jobs to do? How does it work? Yeah. So essentially, what there, yes, there are administrators on the top who, very broadly speaking, they look after the money side of things. And then there's the people who actually deliver the services, which is the, the team starting with doctors. So the doctors, the nurses, uh, the allied health staff, they're the ones that actually deliver the services. Um, and I guess, you know, professors are people, very broadly speaking, as ones who've got an academic interest in not only treating patients, but also improving patient care through research and teaching. So we, you know, we teach the next generation of doctors uh, and we also undertake research to try and improve care. So I think that's the difference between an academic and the average person who's just delivering care. Interesting. And how do, you guys make sure like what's your kpi like do you guys have to have a return on the investments that the hospital give to you guys do you guys have to have some breakthrough and that breakthrough leads to the hospital itself getting more funding from the government is that how it works it's it's a bit more complicated than that so if you look at a hospital probably 90 percent of doctors in the hospital are delivering clinical care and the key performance indicator for delivering clinical care is all the patients that come in through emergency, you treat them appropriately and you discharge them. So what that means on the flip side is that your complication rates, your, you know, if you do procedures, your complication rates, your readmission rates, uh, your cure rates um, are appropriate and adequate. So we have governance systems all around, you know, safety, complications, everything from patients falling uh, in a ward. And obviously, if you have optimal care, lots of people don't fall. Uh, so everything from falls to infections where we put cannulas into people uh, to operative mortality, all of those are metrics that governs and tells us whether we are doing it at an acceptable level for the facility and we are compared nationally and internationally. And then on the research and academic side, uh, say with uh, teaching, uh, we, are, we are meant to teach medical students, graduates um, and research students. And then the metric for that is the students rate us for the quality of the education we give. And then the research side, um, 
we actually uh, judged on both uh, the number of publications, which I guess is a very, very waffly metric. Uh, it's more now based on the impact of your work. So uh, otherwise, you know, there are so many journals out there, you can publish things that aren't really high quality and it'll still be a number as a research publication. So what they really want to sh show, very broadly speaking, is the impact of your work on human health and improving human health and understanding human disease. With the research, is it mostly you doing research on your own, reading tons of books, searching things online, taking notes? Or is there usually like a whole team and you have PhD students helping you sort of with this new thesis or research paper you're putting together? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I do my research, which is in a medical field, is I look at patients and I treat patients. And then from the patients, you say, well, this is a problem we don't understand. And so we need to try and investigate that. And you can, you can investigate that all from the level of a cohort of patients with similar characteristics. And then you can take samples of their blood or tissues. In my case, it would be taking a bit of liver tissue or taking dietary histories or physical activity histories um, and then trying to work out a new way of looking or treating the patient. But often what ends up happening is the patient research gives us a bit of an insight into a problem and we can get a bit of information about what the solution might be. But then, for example, when you're thinking of really making advances, you need to work on model systems. So the model systems can be cells in a laboratory or small animals, and usually we use mice. And the benefit of doing something in a mouse or in cells is that you can put in an intervention that you can't put in in humans. So, for example, if I say you've got hepatitis B and I want to treat you for hepatitis B, I can't just plonk a drug and try it on you. So what we would have is we would have mouse models or cell models. We'd generate what we call preclinical data to try and see, for example, if that drug works or the mechanism that I'm hypothesizing for the development of a disease A or B is what it is. And in that process, I might discover new targets that might be potential treatment targets. I might uh, look at existing drugs or new drugs that might work. And once we've got sufficient um, depth of knowledge and understanding initially from cells, then going up to animal models, and if they're all consistent, then we try and go into clinical trials in patients. So there's a whole lot of, you know, because safety is the absolute number one, there's a huge amount of regulatory hurdles that have been put through both by pharma companies, but more importantly, by governments. And in Australia, it's the National Health and Medical Research Council, the Therapeutic Goods Authority, similar ones all over the world. They regulate what can be tried on humans. And so we really think of this um, circle where a virtuous circle where we identify the problem in a patient 
we try and investigate it outside the lab, outside the patient and preclinical models. And then if we come up with something that's useful, we then try it in, in patients to try and improve patient health. And if you look at most medical advances over the last, you know, you could go 2,000 years, it's all been done uh, with that sort of a model. Um, so, you know, if you think about, you know, hand hygiene, um, it was noticed by Lister 200 years ago that lots of women in childbirth were dying from childbirth. And he just said, you know, wash your hands, uh, wear gloves, and that changed infant mortality and maternal death. So it's really through experimentation and understanding that we can improve human health. But the first thing is to identify what the problem is. Interesting. So let's say you start with a problem like hepatitis B or some type of liver cancer. Would the next step be find, say, a thousand mice, um, break it up into, say, sets of 50, um, give them all hepatitis B, and with each set of 50, use a different drug, a different chemical, and then find which out of the thousand had the best results and then double down around that drug? Yeah, <laughs> hepatitis B is not a very good model because there aren't that good mouse models of hepatitis B. But, but you know, what you're saying is sort of correct. But I think the first point is to, even if you're thinking about a drug, you can only think about a drug once you understand why the disease occurs. So, and that's the term that we talk about pathophysiology. So we talk about normal physiology, how our body works normally, and pathophysiology, in other words, when you have pathology developing, whether it's hepatitis B or hepatitis C, you need to understand how, for example, in the liver, how does that damage the liver? And so you end up first having to try and do some very, very basic studies. So with hepatitis C, uh, as a great example, we knew we first needed to identify that this disease was caused by a virus. Then we needed to identify the virus, which we did in 1990, and we said, yes, it's hepatitis C. Then to cure the virus, we basically needed to understand the sequence of the virus, how it multiplies, what chemicals in the body it, it hijacks to multiply itself and to replicate. And then once you understand, okay, this is the virus, this is how it multiplies, then you can try and find targets that stop the virus replication. And we went through exactly that cycle, uh, understood how the virus replicates, worked out the structure of the enzymes that it uses, the chemicals that it uses to replicate. And then with some very nifty drug development, we were able to develop a suite of drugs that blocked the various uh, chemicals that allow the virus to multiply. And so what we have now is a suite of two or three drugs that we give to a patient and it blocks the virus replicating. Uh, and then now we can cure and eliminate hepatitis C. So what had started was a clinical problem. We're getting all these patients after blood transfusion getting hepatitis. We called it non-A, non-B. Then we identified the virus and called it hep C. 
hepatitis C. Then we took that virus in the laboratory in cells and animal models to work out how it replicates. Then we went to, uh, you know, computer simulations to try and work out how can we design a drug that works. We tried those drugs, several iterations of it, tested it back in animals, and we said, aha, it's doing a good, it's doing what it said it's meant to be doing. And then we go and try it in humans. Tell me about, you mentioned a computer somehow stimulates and puts together a drug. How does that work, Professor? So essentially now our technologies are so good that if we think about any protein in the body, uh, computers can actually work out the 3D structure of, of, the compu- of, of the molecule. And so, for example, if you have a, a protein that might on 3D might look at um, like five fingers, then you can actually design a molecule that will you know, block one finger or two fingers or whatever. Uh, so you can specifically, so rather than just trying a million drugs and saying which one works and I hope it works, you can be a bit more intelligent about it because you know the 3D structure. And then from a lot of chemical design and pharmaceutical design over the last 100 years, we know which drugs are likely to work at which part of the, the protein. And obviously you need drugs not only that inhibit the virus, but you need to make sure that they're not toxic to the human. And so you can work out the drug properties, how long it lasts in the body, are similar drugs with a similar type of structure always associated with some sort of other serious complication, then you avoid those. And so there's a lot of learning that's been amassed over the last you know, 100 years uh, when we design drugs. Now, during the process you mentioned earlier, observing sort of the virus and identifying it, seeing how it multiplies, is that literally getting a blood sample and then putting it under a microscope, zooming it into the micromolecule sort of level, and then like taking photos of a time lapse and seeing how the molecules move around and you guys are able to understand the molecules? I think from a lay perspective, that would be a very broad way of how we would do it. But in practice, it's not with a microscope. What we what we can do is we take the blood sample and then we can actually purify virus particles that we can't actually see. Uh, but we, we know it's there because we can do tests on that purified bit to say, Yes, there are virus particles in here. And then we squirt some of those virus particles into some cells, Mm. onto some cells, and then we see, and then we can actually see whether the virus is multiplying and we can quantify it. So it's not literally seeing as in physically seeing, but we can see the effects that the virus has on the cell. And then we, we, we know the sequence of the virus, And so if we put one virus in, we can measure that 100 have formed, which tells me that the virus is replicating. Whereas if we put one virus and then we put a drug and now there's no virus, we can say, well, it's not replicating. Interesting. 
So we're sort of pretty good when it comes to Hep C. Was it correct? I think when I first met you, you were talking about how we're getting close to a breakthrough with Hep B. Is that correct? Yeah. So Hepatitis B is a bit more of a complicated virus because its replication cycle is more complicated. And also, it can exist in the liver cell completely silent. So the patient as well, they don't feel unwell in any way whatsoever, but we know that the virus is there. And we call those viruses, you know, virus reservoirs in the liver. And we did not have a way of targeting those virus reservoirs to be able to eliminate those reservoirs. And again, we went through the same process. So about 2000 and, um, you know, early 2000s, we developed drugs. If we use the hep C analogy, uh, we developed drugs that uh, stopped the virus replicating. And most of our patients with hepatitis B now, if they require it, we put them on these medications that stop the virus replicating. But we still couldn't get rid of the uh, forms of the virus that are in the reservoir form because they're not targeted by these drugs that inhibit replication. So what that means today is that if a patient's got hep B, yes, I can give them a drug that will prevent them getting many of the side effects of hepatitis B. But as soon as the patient stops the medication, the virus comes back. So then we had to go back to the bench work out how and why the virus replicates and how do we how does it form these reservoir forms and how can we actually target the reservoir forms and so even though we've had these anti-replication drugs for 20 years it's only in the last two to three years well not even two to three years last two years i would say we're now experimenting with drugs that might work on the reservoir forms. If we can get that and the results now are quite promising, it perhaps won't be too long before we can give our hepatitis B patients not only something that stops the replication, but can actually cure the disease. In other words, eliminate the reservoir forms from the liver. Now, when you say reservoir forms, what does that mean? So essentially, it's uh, it's, a, it's, it's a hepatitis B virus, but it is not targeted by any of the drugs. It's, it's, so you have the reservoir, and every now and then one of the reservoir cells begins to multiply, and then it multiplies very quickly. But that template, the blueprint, is not eliminated mm. uh, by any of these drugs that target the replication. And that's the that's the problem. We need to target this so-called DNA molecule that remains in the liver, but it's not targeted by any current drugs. Mm. Now, is the problem the drug is unable to locate it, or the drug is unable to suppress it and, and destroy it? No, the, the, these drugs work on the ones that we have now work on the enzymes that help the virus to replicate. Mm. This quiescent reservoir form, in many ways, it's completely dormant in the liver. 
even though every now and then it spits out one virus that replicates and then millions replicate from that one, mm-hmm. the parent is actually a bit dormant. And that's the problem. So we needed to understand what creates a dormant virus. What is the structure of that dormant virus? What is it that keeps it in a dormancy state most of the time? And then how do we try and eliminate it? Interesting. And what has been the solution? Like, have you guys been able to find a drug that can locate and eliminate this dormant sort of reservoir? We're trying to actually um, eliminate it by multiple strategies that eventually means that the dormant virus disappears. Mm. Um, So we're really trying to change uh, and it's a little bit complicated. We use drugs that try and use the immune system to try and kill the infected cell. We try and develop drugs that are complementary to the dormant form so that the two bind and then, uh, you know, uh, marks them for destruction within the cell. So there's a whole lot of complicated dif- uh, strategies which of those strategies will be the final holy grail and the answer we don't know but i guess what i can say is it's looking very very promising that we will uh, you know i wouldn't have said this 10 years ago but now we're get we're beginning to understand this dormancy form and new ways of being able to attack this dormant form now are you testing these strategies on the cells that you mentioned, how you would get cell samples, inject the virus into it, and then you've gotten results. Have you moved to mice yet? Yeah, yeah. So with hepatitis B, the you know if you think about it as the preclinical studies, they were done in cells before to understand the dormancy state. Things have been done in mice, and we've actually now moved to what we what I would call early phase human studies. Mm. And how, how has the results been so far? So the results so far uh, have really been quite promising. Enough for the pharma companies to take it from what we call phase one and phase two, which are very much about safety and efficacy. Um, because, you know, the most important thing is, is it safe for a human? So you do small studies that look at safety. Then you do... Uh, studies with um, trying more than safety, looking at efficacy. In other words, if you give it to patients, will it reduce the virus level? Um, Apart from being safe, will it reduce the virus level? And initially, you might start with just a single dose in the safety studies. Then you do multiple doses. Then you need to find the optimal dose in a human being because a mouse and a human is very different. So then you actually have multiple ascending doses. You know, you might give, you know, one unit of drug A to some patients, five units, 10 units, 20 units, what have you. Then you work out the optimal dose that gives you the lowest side effects or acceptable side effects, but gives you maximum viral reduction then you go on to and then once you've worked out the dose and the safety and the efficacy then you do these big trials 
which I might say with hepatitis B hasn't got to that stage, but I, I suspect they will, and we'll know the results in a, in a, in a couple of years' time. Now, when you guys do human testing, how do you ensure that that one dose, it might not show any effects within the next week, but how do you know that you're safe for the next 20, 30 years and there won't be late long-term effects? Or is the body always resetting where that is usually not the case? No. So, look, it's a very important question. We don't know uh, for sure, for example, if you take a drug short-term, whether it will have any long-term impacts. You know, and a classic example that everyone would know is thalidomide, which was given to women in the 1960s for nausea. And then the babies were born. They had absent arms or fingers. um, And it was because of thalidomide, which we now don't use. So obviously, everything in, in research is about safety when it comes to humans. So we've got one level of uh, safety based on all the published knowledge on all the sorts of chemical compounds that are used. For your specific disease, you've got data from your cells and from your preclinical models, uh, usually mice. Then you end up going to doing the clinical trials in humans. And obviously, if you do a trial, say, to treat hepatitis B or whatever the disease you have, you might try it uh, and it works. And you give the drug, say, for three months or six months and it works. But then you want to know, just as you said, are there any long-term side effects? And really to assess the long-term side effects, even after you've stopped the drug, patients will remain on the clinical trial off drug to make sure that they don't have any long-term side effects. So, you know, it could be as simple as uh, or as devastating, you know, People might say that after I got this particular drug, um, I lost my hair. Um, And we usually have groups of patients who got, in the the clinical trials, the dummy drug and the real drug. And so you could compare, for example, as a, you know, it's it's a very simple to understand analogy, the number of people who lost hair on the real drug versus the dummy drug. And then you could say, well, You know, it happens equally in both. It's not a drug effect. But long-term side effects, and we call them, um, so we look at clinical trials that extend beyond the active drug to look for side effects. And then even if a drug is approved, we actually have post-marketing research to look for drug side effects. So even if you think about a clinical trial drug that's approved, it might get approved on, say, 2,000 patients or 3,000 patients. That will not pick up a drug side effect that occurs in one in a million. Okay? And there are drugs that might have rare complications, one in a million. So you'd get all the, the, you know, the late-stage clinical data, phase three, which says in 3,000 patients, it's useful with acceptable side effects, et cetera, et cetera. The drug is approved. And then you'll have huge numbers of doctors all over the world prescribing the drug. And then at some point, if it's a one in a million or one in 10 million, 
you might get a single report or a few more reports that are immediately published. And immediately, as soon as that happens, the regulatory authorities start looking into all the post-marketing data that's available. And in some instances, they have actually removed drugs from the uh, therapeutic armamentarium just because of these extremely rare side effects. So safety is everything. And there's immediate, you know, preclinical, clinical, short-term, medium-term, long-term studies to evaluate uh, complications and side effects. And even if you do have side effects, I guess the balance is always going to be between benefit versus harm. So if you have a drug, I you know think of a cancer drug, if it's definitely going to prolong life by six months, but in a, the odd patient that lives that gets cured, uh, one in a million of those end up getting a fatal side effect. What is the cost versus the benefit? And again, the regulatory authorities tend to decide that. And we have appropriate safety warnings and labels on any drugs. Interesting. And how do they determine that that safety versus reward, if you can help a million people, but one in a million people might have a side effect? Who, who, what's in the regulatory body? Do they have professors in that regulatory body or are professors trying to argue their point towards these administrative people? Yeah. I think very simply put, in the regulatory bodies, there are what we would call them independent experts. So they have no links with pharma, no links with universities that are doing the trials or doctors that are doing the trials. They end up having to be extremely squeaky clean. Uh, and that's part, of, And but they have to be experts. And not only they're, they're experts in that particular disease, but you have economic experts, you know, is the drug going to be sold for a million bucks for a dose or 20,000? So what is the cost to the community? We have uh, we have epidemiologists that tell us what is the disease prevalence. So it's a whole collection of experts mm. that come together to look at any new drug. Uh, and they're really quarantined um, from being impacted by you know, opinions, and then the companies who are going for a drug approval have to end up showing them all of the data. So it's not just in a, you know, a matter of going through a 20-page document that the company has put in, it or a 100-page document for that matter. These people in the regulatory bodies have access to the raw data of every single patient on the trial. Uh, it's not what the drug company just tells them. So it's it's obviously the submission, it's the raw data, they comb through all of it. They will then also contact independent experts who happen to work at universities, etc., who might be called to give their opinion about the benefits of the drug or not. Uh, and there might be, uh, you know, cost effectiveness, people, there might be epidemiological people, all of those people, and then they actually decide uh, what to do. And, you know, that's exactly what happened 
with, say, the COVID vaccines. So there's an immediate need. You want to know whether the drugs, the vaccines work or the drugs that we, some of the drugs that we have work. They do the clinical studies all the way from the preclinical studies to the actual vaccine trials. You get the raw data. And then because it was such a health emergency, the regulatory body said, we don't have enough safety data, but we're going to give you conditional approval. In other words, we're going to give you approval because this is killing so many people. And we're going to just monitor it like a hawk uh, and look at all the patients that are coming through just to get some long-term efficacy data. And sometimes the full approval only occurs um, uh, you know, many months after the temporary approval. So it all depends, you know, on the disease severity that we're talking about and the clinical need. Now, talking about COVID, one thing I always wondered was, do the mask work? Do wearing masks reduce the chance of you transmitting a, a cough um, and, and having it go airborne? Um, what's your thoughts on that, Professor? Look, firstly, as a disclaimer, I'm not an infectious disease expert, but I think the way I think about all of these protections are graded layers of protection. Mm. Okay. So if you're indoors versus being outdoors and we're talking to each other, the chance of spread is much more in an indoor setting uh, just because there's no air circulation as much as you would get outdoors. Uh, hand hygiene and personal protection with hand hygiene is the next level. So if I had to, in the, in the midst of the Delta wave, if I was going to uh, meet people, I would obey the public health guidance, meet outside, wash hands frequently. Uh, masks do work, but they're not the be all and end all that they will work in every instance. It's layers of protection. And then the final layer uh, is, you know, the full N95 mask, uh, hand washing, uh, everything put together. So, I, and I think at different stages of the epidemic, uh, the public health authorities have had different levels of guidelines. And if you remember back in the early days with COVID, we were asked to all stay at home because that's the best way to prevent an infectious disease that spreads through the respiratory secretions. If people don't mix, they don't spread. Uh, and as we've got knowledge of the, the, the virus, how it progresses, etc., we're able to tailor make the recommendations, both from a public health perspective and also what the community is able to cope with. Interesting. And what would lead to a stronger person, like a person who naturally gets the COVID um, disease and, and naturally sort of defeats it versus someone that's taken shot one, shot two, booster three? Is there any difference at all? Um, what, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the vaccines, what we're very sure about is that the vaccines work and they prevent severe illness. Okay, but we also know that the vaccine-induced uh, vaccine immunity to the virus 
wanes over time. So if you get got your vaccine, at least in the first four to five months, the immunity is very strong and your risk of severe disease is very low. The longer you go from the vaccine, so we're talking, you know, five, six months on after the vaccine, your immunity wanes. So you're more likely to get new, you know, infection, which is what's happening currently in Australia that, um, you know, lots of people have had the vaccine, but now we are mixing and we've got a very infectious type of virus, but most of our population is vaccinated. So infections are happening, but we're preventing the severe disease. That doesn't, however, mean that every patient is protected from severe disease. Whether you get severe disease or not is really dependent on a host of factors. One is, you know, the proximity to the vaccine. You know, how soon did you had how soon before did you have it? Your own immune system. How strong was your immune system to respond to that vaccine? And how long does your immune system stay active to cope uh, with a natural infection? And then the other risk factors are your personal risk factors. Uh, so if you if if you've already got very bad lung disease, or obesity, or bad cardiovascular disease, then it just takes a small insult to push you over and kill you. Okay, so you may have mild disease, but it can be just enough to push you and put you into intensive care or cause your death. You know, in the old days, we used to, there's an infection called um, a streptococcus infection. And we used to call it the old man's friend. And so what used to happen, and this has been going on for a hundred years and it still goes on. An old person gets a, a strep infection, a lung infection. It's a pneumonia type infection. Most uh, younger people would, uh, they might get sick, but they wouldn't die. But in the older person, it just pushes them across and is, is the um, final event. So really how you respond to the vaccine depends on your host factors and your immunity and whether you take the vaccine or not. And obviously the strain of the virus. Is there a reason why people are still getting COVID despite getting the vaccines? Is it because the virus is evolving? Is that why? Not just that. The biggest part is that the, the way a vaccine works is it stimulates your immune system to fight the virus. And that, so it's the, it's got no, it's the vaccine that induces the host response. But what's protecting you is your response, your immune response. But we know now from studies that that immune response does wane with time in everyone. Mm. You know, including in the most healthy person and the least healthy person in everyone, the immune response wanes with time. And we still don't fully understand why that occurs. But say, for example, if you look at the common cold, which would be a good analogy. A common cold, an average healthy person in Australia would get between six and nine attacks of the sniffles in a year's time. 
What that's telling you is that the immunity to the common cold just wanes and you get a new attack. On the other hand, if you look at the hepatitis B vaccine, the immunity that you get from hepatitis B vaccine is essentially lifelong. So there's something about that vaccine that creates lifelong immunity. Okay, because your immune system produces these antibodies that give you lifelong immunity. That doesn't occur in, you know, with the COVID vaccine. And is that because we haven't fully replicated the virus and created a version that is exactly the same, but took away all the major side effects and basically cloned it? We don't have that high level of a vaccine. Is that why? Not quite, not quite, because what we found with hepatitis B was that there was one particular protein on the virus that created one antibody. And as long as you could create that antibody, you'd never get the hepatitis B again. With COVID and the common cold, it's not just one antibody that determines whether you get another infection or not. It's, you know, your immune system essentially is the system that animals evolved to cope with pathogens, you know, something from the outside. So the immune system is actually the most complex system that you could ever possibly imagine. And there's multiple, multiple arms of the immune system. And so to get COVID immunity, you need all of those arms working optimally. And we don't know how to do that yet. So it's not a single protein and a single antibody that helps uh, uh, COVID protection. You need all the arms working optimally to control it. We can't do it for the common cold and we can't do it for COVID. And then if you think about it a little bit more deeply, you could say, well, If you think the human body in many ways is perfect and we're still getting the cold six times a year, can scientists develop something that's even better than your own human body? And I'm not sure we're there yet. Interesting. What about the approach where you sort of don't take any vaccines and you just sort of take the flow, um, take the virus and have your body train and, and your immune system get stronger and get used to these different flus and different COVID strands and um, and then have natural selection occur where all the people that survive, like the next generation is going to get stronger and stronger. Is that a valid point or would that lead to too many deaths? For some, for, for some diseases that might work, but say, for example, the influenza, that, you know, uh, influenza kills a few Australians every year. But every year the virus changes and your immunity weakens. Mm. So you can get people who've had an attack of the flu five years ago and they had a bad attack uh, and they get another attack two or three years later and they can get a severe attack. So I, I think when you play with the immune system, we don't completely understand it. There is such a thing that immunity wanes for a lot of things. Um, and I think we don't have, we, we're not there yet in having a full understanding of it. So you can get lots of infections 
again and again and again. Do you think the immune system is more similar to muscles where it can grow, but then if you don't work on it, it gets weaker? Or is it more like the brain where it sort of remembers things and it forgets and then it needs triggers to remember again? I think the immune system really is completely on another level. Wow. To either the brain or, 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 you know, the mind is on another level for other things, you know, consciousness and all the rest of it. But the immune system has just got so many arms and so many things. It does have a, a memory component. And that's why, for example, if you got the vaccine today and in three weeks you get exposed to the virus, you're going to get virtually no infection. Okay? And that's because the virus is remembering. And then in four weeks or two months, you'll still get pretty good protection because there's still some of that memory. Around six months, that memory is very weak. So it's, it's just like a, a very, very fine-tuned uh, system that I, I guess in many ways, you just have to look at it in awe that it protects us against, you know, when you think about how we're exposed to foreign things, whether it's on our skin, whether we breathe or whether we eat it, the immune system has to just make sure all of those things are safe for the human body. And so it's a very, very complex system. When I last saw you, Doc, you were recommending me this diet that the Japanese and Italians would eat and they would allow them to live to 100 years old, where they would just have diets of nuts, um, not too much meat, um, not too much carbs, and it was like really lean, a lot of vegetables. Have humans, have we, have our lifespan increased or have we always been able to live to old ages? Because I know the data is skewed because a lot of infants used to die back then. So it's not that the average lifespan was 30 years old. It's just because a lot of people died much younger, but there were a lot of old, old people back in the days as well. Look, I think all the medical advances over the, you know, the last uh, 100 years and more have improved human lifespan, you know, and you just need to look at cardiovascular disease and heart attacks and how we can treat it. And there's enough people out there that have had a heart attack that would have otherwise killed them. And we've got now treatments that can stop those. We've got treatments for diabetes. So there's definitely a medical research and drugs and surgery based improvements in lifespan. Um, think of kidney dialysis as another example. But I guess what I'm on about more is that the best way to age is healthy aging. So can we age without getting disease? And, you know, if you think about the diseases that we get, it's cardiovascular disease, cancer-related death. Um, you know, those would be the big two. Uh, and then, yeah, sure, you get liver disease and emphysema and all of those other diseases. So how do you have a lifestyle that promotes healthy longevity without chronic disease? Because I think if you age well without chronic disease, that that is the ideal because chronic disease can be quite disabling. 
whether it's because you've got excess weight and you're getting arthritis in your knees, um, you know, arthritis and pain in your knees or your hips, it's a daily problem. And yes, you can minimize it with medications, but for me, really, it's all about healthy aging. Did humans always get all these different types of cancers, but we weren't able to identify it? Or are we only getting it now due to all the chemicals and plastics, microplastics in the food we eat? It's not just chemicals and microplastics. The way I think about, um, you know, cancer development, for example, is I really look at it in two things. One is, okay, obviously, if, you're, if you've got a particular genetic mix, you might be more predisposed to a cancer, okay? Then it's the human interaction with the environment. So you can get, and I don't just choose to call it, you know, microplastics or other things, but when, the, when we look at how we interact with the environment, we interact with the environment through our nose. So we breathe air, we eat, and we might touch things on the skin, okay? And a good one would be acid, for example, if you poured it on your skin. So the human organism, which is a massive uh, genetic material that produces us, then interacts with the environment. And then depending on how you interact with the environment uh, and your body's ability to respond, that then determines whether you get disease or not. So, for example, if you choose to smoke, then you're going to be at more risk, we know, of getting lung cancers and cardiovascular disease. If you get exposed to asbestos, you can get lung cancer. But equally, I think if your diet is not healthy, then you will actually get the diseases um, related to an unhealthy diet which is really a lot of the problems that we get now, which is linked to excess uh, weight and then all the downstream uh, diseases that causes, whether it's cardiovascular disease, whether it's lung disease, arthritis, liver disease, kidney disease, diabetes, all of those are essentially got to do with the amount of the current type of nutrition we take. Doc, could you please share with everyone that sort of diet you recommended me and do you recommend skipping breakfast or do, do you eat breakfast yeah look i personally don't uh eat breakfast uh but i think you know doing a podcast i i guess for me the most important thing to emphasize is um a healthy diet and what is a healthy diet and you know and you can look it up on the internet it's called the blue zone diets and the blue zones in the world are the places where people have the highest healthy longevity. Now, the people in Okinawa, in Sardinia, uh, in parts of Greece, um, and there's also a Seventh-day Adventist community in California. And essentially, the all of their diets are characterized by natural foods that we would take. So they emphasize, you know, vegetables, fruits, nuts, and they also emphasize complex, unprocessed carbohydrates. So, you know, how can you get all of those? And it's, it's actually very easy. If you go to your fresh fruit and vegetables sh shop to get those, 
you buy nuts that you recognize as nuts. Uh, so you're eating whole natural foods and complex carbohydrates, uh, which essentially would be, you know, ideally your brown rice, or your basmati rice, whole grain breads, whole meal, um, burritos, etc. cetera. Um, and the evidence seems to suggest with all of these blue zone uh, people, they have very little animal protein intake. And, um, and, and they maintain a healthy weight. They have few uh, comorbid diseases. I'm not saying that they won't develop any heart disease, but it's surprising how much of good health they have to such an old age just by their diet. And I think, you know, the aphorism that food is medicine is very, very important and should be taken. I remember when I tried to switch to this diet initially, I found myself hungry a lot of the times. I wanted to ask, like, what is that feeling of hunger? Um, recently, I came back from a trip from New Caledonia, climbed this mountain, got lost. I was stuck on the mountains for two days. I had no food and I was able to hike like 20 hours over two days with it was really tough terrain, vertically descending mountains, descending waterfalls. And I was able to survive with no food. I was drinking a lot of water from the river. And then the next few days, my stomach just sort of contracted. All of a sudden, I got full really quickly when I was eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now it's sort of expanded again now that I'm back at home. But yeah. So I think there's a lot of social constructs around food behavior. So, you know, what you're used to, what you grew up with, what other members in your family do, food, food cues, whether it's the sense or the smell or the taste of food. Uh, and I guess my role more is to really tell you where the science is. And the science really says that we should be reducing, our, uh, you know, um, either no or minimal animal protein, uh, which is either dairy or, or meat, and really focus on unprocessed, um, healthy, naturally occurring foods and sticking to the fresh food aisles of your local grocery store. The evidence from all of these communities, they also eat fish. And again, uh, fish is part of their diet. And that's something that I would recommend also. Is breakfast, lunch and dinner, is that a social construct? Like is, is it more optimal to eat once a day or twice a day? See, I think we currently are stuck with a, a three times uh, a, a day meal routine. And many people, the average American, I think, has seven meals a day. They have snacks in between. Um, so if you include that, this uh, eating food and grazing on food is now part of the social construct. But historically, many, many animals um, eat um, uh, once a day. And if you look at humans thousands of years ago, before we had agriculture, we were actually foragers and we used to uh, get food. And when we got food, we ate it. And then we had long periods of starvation when we couldn't access food. I think everything changed when we we developed agriculture. Once you developed agriculture and you were able to store food, 
then yes, there were periods of intense work when you had to plant and sow the crops. But then once you were able to store the crops, you were able to have more time. And then people began to specialize. So, you know, people, you know, people ended up being able to, um, some were on the farm, some were organizers, some became, um, you know, people that kept accounts of how much food was produced. And then we developed our social hierarchy from becoming bands of uh, hunter gatherers. And with all of that and being able to store food, we then developed a different pattern of eating, which is the three meals a day. And now, you know, maybe seven meals a day and grazing the whole time. On the contrary, back in the hunter and gatherer days, didn't humans always like hunt wild boars and deers and ate a lot of meat? Or was that like a myth? And then we mainly ate berries and fruits and nuts on plants. I think, I think it was a mix of all of those. But we weren't, you know, if you look at our molars, we've historically, we're grinders. Mm. Uh, And, and, you know, that's the key thing. And yes, when we, you know, this is not about um, not eating meat at all. Uh, This is really at a historical perspective. Yes, we captured game and we use game, but their main source of diet uh, was really uh, from anything that they could get. And this is a concept uh, that's been popularized, in fact, at the university, about talking about a nutritional ecology. So in other words, people eat in the environment that they're in. And so the ecology a thousand years ago, or 2000 years ago, even longer, you, you tried to forage in the environment that you were, and then you took what you could. Very cool. One thing I've always noticed when talking to a lot of professors is professors have such a wide, vast range of knowledge. Like I was talking to like a physicist and he was talking about diet and then politics. Like professors usually have such a wide palette of knowledge. Like, are you reading all the time, professor? I like, yeah, where does it come from? Look, I think there's a whole lot of people who aren't professors who do exactly the same thing. And I just think it's it's all about whether you're inquisitive or not. But interestingly, you know, I think even being inquisitive is a learned behavior. I mean, some people naturally are inquisitive. Others, depending on who mentors you and the path you take, um, become less inquisitive or more inquisitive. So I think if you're trying to make ends meet as uh, doing a very manual type task and you're exhausted, and that's what you've been used to, it does give you very little time to think. On the other hand, you know, if you're in another profession and you're constantly being pushed um, and you've got mentors that you look to, then you develop into a a different framework. Is it possible, what's your thoughts on teaching curiosity to, say, your children, my children, my future children? Is there a way that I can sort of have them ask more questions or is that um how how do you practice that look i I think you know um child rearing is one of the big um the greatest experiment in life i think for any any human being i don't think for for me personally 
I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. And I think you have to do what's, what seems best to you as a parent. Uh, I don't think you can actually will intelligence or inquisitiveness or other things. So much of their upbringing is going to be things that interest you as a person. Um, you know, for example, with my children, I wasn't keen that they played a, con a contact sport like rugby. Just a very personal thing. Uh, I was very happy for them to be playing soccer. And so you encourage kids according as uniquely possible that only a mother and a father can encourage. And they do it. They do what feels right to them. And you get the product. And I think at the end of the day, that product invariably gives variety. And I don't think we want a world full of inquisitive people or non-inquisitive people or manual workers or all scientists. What makes humans human is the incredible variety that we have. And really, uh, that's, the, that's the, the part that's lovely. You know, why do we actually travel, whether it's to uh, Asia or Europe? It's because those people are different. How boring it would be if every country was uh, exactly the same. What I found really interested, interesting was the physicist I was talking to on this camping trip that I went to that I randomly met. Um, you know, he, he's, he's like an engineer. And all three of his boys, I think he had three boys and one girl, and all the boys, they all ended up becoming engineers as well. Yeah, yeah. So there is a lot of, um, you know, just as much as your teachers and your um, your managers shape you, I think parents are the biggest influence on their kids, at least for a significant part of the time that they're there and for the adults they become. Professor, where can people find more about what you're doing, follow your journey, see your research, see where you're up to? Where's the best place for people to follow your journey, Professor? I don't know, actually. <laughs> That's perhaps a good question to, fi to finish on. Um, but look, um, I mean, most of my research is, is published. Um, but, you know, it's pretty dry. But eventually all about research is communicating that. And, you know, sometimes I give talks on radio. Sometimes I do podcasts like with you. And, you know, the way I actually look at um, dissemination, which is what we're talking about, knowledge dissemination, I think it's it's like a trickle-down effect. So, yes, I'm actually doing research, but I'm doing it on the body of work that a lot of others have done. And then I try and train the younger doctors with this knowledge and then in 20 years, they'll be training other people. And that's how knowledge, you know, knowledge disseminates and how we improve. Um, and, you know, I think, um, yeah, and, it, and it's all about communication. You've got to communicate at the level that works for the audience that you have. 
I saw this meme or this sort of funny photo where it was showing how there was this big circle of all the knowledge in the world and when a professor or a student's doing a PhD or doing a thesis or trying to do something new, it adds this tiny little dent on this massive circle and, and you're pushing the circle by this very tiny dent. Very important, very important uh, aspect to remember, actually. If you think about, you know, Buddhist philosophy, they really keep emphasizing the, you're just a speck and you're just like a sand in the, on the beach. And in the long history of time, you're nothing. You'll come and you'll go. Um, but when you're, you know, when you're there, have a ball. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor. I really, really appreciate it. I just love how calm you are. You've been able to explain and, and dumb things down in a way that I'm able to easily consume and absorb what you've disseminated um, and I can definitely see the the passion and effort that you've put beside into your work and it's amazing how you've been able to help break through hepatitis B that's that's freaking amazing that's a problem that we've had for a while and and it's amazing that we have people like you being able to really put in all your effort to solve that issue and many others of course thank you very much Thank you so much, Professor. Really appreciate your time. So this is another episode of the podcast and we'll see you guys next week with another episode. Peace.